0: Welcome to What the Risk, Exposing Business Blind Spots, an interview-based podcast series that discusses risk management topics. Have you ever been blindsided in a business situation? Think about your entire computer system going down, a supplier that cannot deliver, or your biggest customer declaring bankruptcy, or your new marketing strategy completely missing the mark. These are visceral what the risk moments. Your exact words may be different, but the feeling is the same. When everyone's eyes are focused on the next sale, high impact, low visibility risks often get overlooked. We call these blind spots, and these blind spots cause what the risk moments. I am your host, Larry Gordon of Gordon Risk Solutions. Join us on this journey as we learn to ask the right questions, expose potential pitfalls, and empower you to turn the what the risk moments into I've got this victories. Welcome to episode 110. This is the 10th episode, first season of the What the Risk podcast. We're gonna be talking about financial transparency and risk management. Our guest today is Gary Kokins. He is the internationally recognized expert, speaker, and author on enterprise and corporate risk performance management. He talks about improvement methods in business analytics. He's the founder of Analytics-Based Performance Management Company. With that, welcome, Gary.
1: Well, thank you very much, Larry, for inviting me.
0: I appreciate you being here. So can you take a moment and just tell people kind of what you do?
1: <laughs> well, first I'm 74, but I feel like I'm 44. Um, um, I would say my career is over. It's now a vocation. There's a difference. Careers, like many of you listening to this, salary increases, job promotions. Vocation, it's a calling. I want to make a difference. I've had a successful career. Maybe we'll go over my bio a little bit later I like basically helping others, but I primarily like helping people in the finance and accounting space because, and you're probably going to get offended when I say this, many CFOs and accountants are in the 1970s. We got to get them into the 21st century. We'll talk a little bit what that's all about.
0: Well, that's terrific. And And you're a prolific author. How many books are you up to now?
1: Oh, gee, probably over a dozen, although some of them are co-authored, but, and there's a whole story about how I even got into, you know, write your first book and you realize, hey, I can write a book and the journey continues.
0: Well, we appreciate that. And hopefully we'll give you the shout out and people can find the books later. So what do you, tell us about what you're currently working on and kind of what really excites you?
1: Well, what I, you know, my career, I started a first decade in industry, large manufacturing conglomerate, FMC, Link Belt. but then 30-some years in consulting with Deloitte, uh, KPMG, uh, then electronic data systems, EDS, that is now part of uh, Hewlett-Packard. And then I was 16 years with SAS, SAS, the large, large privately-owned software vendor and analytics, 15,000 employees. And, you know, what I basically and was doing all those years was implementing these various corporate performance management methods. And we can talk about them later. And I have techniques to do it that are based on um, speed to results as rapid prototyping with iterations. Um, And, uh, you know, kind of like start small, think big. So uh, you can actually implement an activity-based costing system or a balanced scorecard in, in a couple of weeks. So what I'm doing, though, is training other consultants, including CPA firm advisory arms, how to do and implement these CPM methods the way I've already been doing it. I don't really need to spend six weeks or a couple of months. I don't mind doing a little consulting work. but is I just call it knowledge transfer, training others to do what I've been doing the last 40 years of my life.
0: Well, we're glad to have your calling here to help the people that listen to the What The Risk podcast. So tell me what the biggest inspiration in your life has been in terms of your career.
1: When I think about inspiration, I, I think about a mentor. Um, I worked at Deloitte way back got uh, for a man named Bob Bonsack. He passed away over a decade ago, but he was my mentor. He, I was just a senior manager then. I was in Detroit. I'm a Chicago native. Go Cubs, go Bears, go White Sox. Um, but he really took the time to sit with me and train me more. And I don't know if you would call that an inspiration. When it comes to authors, it's Mark Twain. I'm inspired by Mark Twain. But when it comes to a mentor, it was uh, Bob Bonsack, just a wonderful, wonderful man.
0: Well, terrific. So now, and, and
1: all of my books in the first pages are, you know, in memoriam. They're all to Bob.
0: Well, I'm sure his family is really excited to see that. So thank you for sharing that. So as we start talking about uh, financial management and being able to see the, what the true financial transparency of what's going on in your business, how to manage it, I want to make sure that we level set from our audience perspective because we have people across all industries everything from entertainment to retail to manufacturing. And I want to make sure that we kind of give examples for each of those so that they understand in the context, so if we can do that. So with that, uh, oh, and we also have a number of bankers and investors that tend to listen because as they are evaluating uh, the people that they're going to invest in and evaluating people they're going to loan money to, they want to understand how to better do the due diligence. So all of this is insightful for them as well, not just the business leaders. So with that, there are seem to be a number of different accounting methods that are out there that people use, and it's almost like the Mark Twain statement, those lies, damn lies, and statistics. It feels like that way when it comes to accounting methods. So as we talk about that, can you kind of give a little bit of insight as to the difference between kind of the standard P&L and Some of the more important uh, methods to manage and understand accounting from a transparency perspective. Yeah,
1: sure. And just an observation quickly um, the methods are universal for service organizations, uh, manufacturers, product making. I recently learned that in the United States, only eight out of every 100 jobs make tangible products, the other 92 are services, banks, insurance companies, travel agencies. So But these methods are universal, so they can be applied in service organizations. So a lot of people service, oh, this is a manufacturing thing. I created a document for the International Federation of Accountants. It's called ifac.org. They're in New York City. They're like the United Nations of uh, global accounting institutes. And I created for them what I call a taxonomy of the big world of accounting, which is what you're talking about and the three you know just like in biology plant kingdoms animal kingdoms you know so the three kingdoms are tax accounting external financial statutory accounting which you refer to as the standard PL, and then internal management accounting here's the differences first tax accounting i don't even want to talk about it that's got all those crazy things (laughs) that they do External financial statutory reporting for government regulatory agencies like in the SEC in the United States, the accountants can actually get a little lazy. They follow what's called generally accepted accounting principles, GAAP, commonly known as GAAP. And with GAAP, like, for example, if it is a product costing company, they're doing uh, product costing. When it comes to overhead, and that's really the issue they can just spread the indirect expense overhead is more properly called indirect expense to the products like, like spreading butter across bread. They'll use these cost allocation factors like number of labor hours, number of units produced, sales dollars, headcount, square feet, square meter. But none of those reflect the unique consumption that the products or diverse service service lines consume are the end-to-end processes and the expenses that are consumed by them. This is where activity-based costing comes in. And so internal management accounting doesn't have to follow those gap rules. It's modeling. It uses its own more logical, more cause-and-effect relationship, causality principles, real key. And the net result is you get much more accuracy, doesn't have to be precise, but you get far more accuracy. So the three things, tax accounting, external statutory reporting, that's really for, if you will, valuation, inventory value. Internal management and accounting is about creating value for owners and shareholders through, you know, increasing their wealth by having better information, for more insights and better decisions. In the end, this is all about decision-making.
0: Well, it sounds like that's the key to why people would go down this path. So they have better decisions, they have better information, and they make better overall choices and can have a conversation internally going, your department's costing us more because. Is that a fair statement?
1: Oh, very fair. You know, With management accounting, you get a lot more visibility. You see more and transparency um, and reasonable accuracy. Notice I used reasonable. I didn't say perfection. You know, that's part of the problem with the CFOs and the accountants. You know, they worry, like in manufacturing, about having it exactly, you know, to the decimal point. They have what I'll call burden rates for machines. You know, they worry about five digits to the right of the decimal point. The error may be two digits to the left. Um, with management accounting, we have a phrase, it's better to be approximately correct than a precisely inaccurate. In other words, better to be roughly right than exactly wrong. And so you can get to 95, 98% accuracy. Uh, it's, you know, it's good enough.
0: Well, that's good. So as we go down that path, let's talk about some of the misconceptions about how do people use accounting? tools and how they look at their business, uh, whether that be from one of the kind of standard p ls the kind of a gap. Give us some insights as to misconceptions and how to approach those, how to set this straight.
1: Well, there's several. One key misconception is with the standard costing, the external statutory, you know, people believe the numbers. Oh, the CFO, he's got a C or he or she's got a CPA, you know, the numbers must be right. However, there are many managers inside who are suspicious that, in fact, they're more than, they don't trust the numbers. They know those cost allocations. Are flawed and misleading. You know, they're saying, hey, you know, this other department's causing all the indirect expense, not me, but my product's basically being charged, you know, with it. So it's wrong. So misconception is that the standard costing is re- usable for insights and decision. Another misconception is, okay, well, let's move to a more progressive internal management accounting system. Oh, it'll be too hard. It'll be too complicated. Every employee will have to fill out a timesheet An employee hate timesheets. Um, and I could go on and on Oh, and oh, it'll be huge. There'll be a monstrous system. We won't know how to maintain it. No one's going to understand it. And so another misconception is, well, let's not bother to do it, even though we know it'd be better because it's worth the effort. And I have techniques to dispel that misconception.
0: So let's start sharing some real life examples so people can understand kind of how it can be applied in uh, and, and how it can be used to solve some of the problems. So I know you use a lot of different examples in your presentations.
1: Um, well, I, I'm reluctant to name clients just because, you know, sort of protect the innocent. Um, but Molly, well, there's so many, there's two types of um, approaches to using uh, these progressive methods. And you know, Larry, activity-based costing is essential. Can I just, before I go to the examples, can I give a quick definition or explain it?
0: Please do. I want is, to make sure people understand the example.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, the simple way I say is imagine you go to a restaurant with three other friends. You order a little salad. The other three order the most expensive item on the menu. And at the end of the meal, when the waiter or waitress brings the bill, the other three say, hey, let's put this check evenly. How do you feel? Right. Not fair not equitable. Well, that's how products and standard service lines and service organization also feel when the accountants do take that large amount of indirect expense. And typically, the indirect expense is almost or maybe even more than the direct expense. So we're not talking something slow here. And they will spread it like butter across bread using those cost allocation factors that I I mentioned earlier. But what activity-based costing does is it will decompose all of that overhead, the indirect, into what we will call cost pools, and then trace and assign them with a cause and effect relationship. So if it's like number of material moves in a factory, you know that would be the driver which products move. If it's a hospital, number of blood tests. I'm quite involved with the HFMA. That's the Healthcare Financial Management Association in Chicago, patient profitability. Um, so the simple definition of activity-based costing is, as if the waiter or waitress brings four individual checks. You only pay for the salad. You're not gonna subsidize the other three. That's how you get substantially more accuracy because with the butter spreading, in reality, what's happening is some of the products and services are way over costed. The others must be way under because it's a zero sum error game. Now, activity-based costing can be applied in a strategic way and in an operational productivity process improvement way. Let's first start with the strategic way. You get what is called profit margin analysis. One of my clients, actually, I was brought in by a large consulting firm. I'm not going to name them, but they're basically um, a delivery service. Uh, So you can imagine there's only three, four, or five of them in the uh, United States. And they did not know their true costs per route, Per truck type, per package, per whether it's on a rural or it's a uh, city speed. That's where all the diversity and variation comes in. So they really needed to know what's the true cost of delivering a package under all these different conditions, rural, highway, weekend, because they were pricing, but they didn't know if with that pricing, did that give us a profit? Or is it giving us a loss? So they really needed, if you will, think of they needed to know the profit profit margins of all of the things that they deliver. So that's um, that's an example of of um, strategic profitability. Another one though, I did for it's called Blue Diamond Alm. I'll name them. It's a almond grower in the San Jose, California, and they they also wanted to know the cost per acre of because you're processing different machines but they really wanted to know how to improve the productivity so you can use the activity-based costing data the cost they're called activity costs and you can sequence them like pearls on a necklace to see a process view so things like order to cash um and then there's a additional method called lean accounting where each of those activities that are now being strung like pearls on the necklace can be tagged like value added, non-value added, how important, less important attributes is what are those examples you can tag or score. It's like the color of money on the activities. And many, some of the people listening will be familiar with value stream maps or you've heard about value Mm -hmm. stream maps and they're really about helping focus where are the opportunities for cycle time reduction quality improvement you know and the like so there's two clients i've worked with as examples
0: well those are great so when we think about kind of learn opportunities to learn the lessons learned kind of we always learn better from other people's mistakes cuz we'd rather learn from them than make it ourselves can you give us insight and maybe it's not your client but maybe it's another client that or public case study of where activity costing or accounting was just wrong and how it might have led to different conclusions that they'd done it right?
1: Well, this leads to um, not to what measuring customer profitability. Most accountants will measure, I'm having to talk a little accounting ease here, but they'll just include, you know, direct material, direct labor and the over. They draw the line product gross profit margin. And then they can, and when you do ABC, you you, you discover, oh, oh, these products or serve standard service lines were way over costed, way under costed. we corrected it. But the real issue is below the product gross profit margin line, it's customers. And a lot of them think, uh, and here's a lesson, oh, our largest customer in sales must be our most profitable. No, not really, because customers, can really vary in how they place demands on a company. We, you have good customers, bad customers. There's actually a book by some Columbia University faculty called Angel Customers and Demon Customers. So example of a demon customer, high maintenance, always changing delivery schedule, always calling help desk, always returning goods. You know, The angels, the low maintenance, we like them because never call help desk, never change delivery schedule, never always by standard, not special, if those two types of customers bought the same volume, same mix, mm-hmm. same price at the extreme, they're not equally profitable, the high maintenance one. So here's the point, activity-based costing will go below the product gross profit margin line to trace and assign channel distribution expenses, marketing expenses, selling expenses, cost to serve. The result is a p and a profit and loss statement for each customer. And the shock, this is to the misconception you're talking about of, oh, our biggest customers in sales maybe must be our most profitable. No, they can discover that at the extreme, your biggest customer is actually unprofitable by the time you've given them price discounts and do all those extra services to please them. You're not making money on them. So, you know, Larry, what this is really all about is having fact-based information. Reasonably. And this is a phrase I often use. I'll say it here. In the absence of facts, anybody's opinion is a good one. In the absence of facts, anybody's opinion is a good one. But usually the biggest opinion wins, which is the opinion of the boss or the boss of the boss. So to the degree those higher up executives are making decisions on intuition or gut feel or office politics or the flawed and misleading information and the, and the error can be 20 30 40%. This is not insignificant. Then the organization is going to be at risk. So you really need you need the facts. Give me the facts.
0: Yeah, the the fact-based data uh, database data-based decisioning are critical. And I've seen that when I'm doing due diligence for lending, it's like we don't know whether that customer's profitable because to your point they had demon customers that Use a lot more resources as opposed to kind of the simple ones that are kind of uh, auto on autopilot, uh, and those are really the the profitable ones because you're not you're not expending all these resources to support them because it's kind of it's going on its own, and I think that that's a really key and important point to drive home, both for the the company leaders. Because they don't think about it that way. They're like, okay, it's the best customer. Let's give them some additional discounts. Well, do they deserve those discounts? Or are they kind of of the winner's curse? Give them to another competitor so they can deal with that business loss. And and you might have the lower sales, but your margins are going to greatly improve. And so you really have to think through that. And is it just the allocation of overhead that you need? Is the only reason you're keeping them? Yeah, so, you
1: don't. You do You don't adjust. It isn't just adjust the overhead. Orig- you reform it. You just do it a much better way.
0: You have to. So, do, as you've worked with clients, or, or as you've seen other people work with clients, as you've gone through your trainings, tell us about some of the aha moments that you've seen clients or other companies. Recognize when they kind of uncovered and looked at numbers differently, and had better transparency on what was really happening.
1: Uh, I, you know, I hate to be repetitive, but the customer profitability is usually the, a big aha moment when they do. And and we've already just gone through this the last five minutes. You know, when they see that our large sales customers are much less profitable. You know, you know than 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 we we realized. From the process view, they also sometimes get surprised when they actually see what's called cost equality or these attributes I mentioned, value-added, non-value-added. And they look at the various steps in the value stream app and they start seeing, wow, I didn't realize how much waste we have here. We've got excess inventory. We've got people that are taking longer lunch breaks and so forth. That We call that unused capacity or idle capacity. So it's sort of coming back to the same thing. You've, you need visibility and transparency to see things. And traditional statutory accounting, quite frankly, um, is, it's, it blocks it. It doesn't provide the visibility. I have a phrase, get this, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Yeah. I'll repeat that. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. You know, so if you're competing and the others are still using flawed information, but you've got the visibility, you'll compete better with them. You'll price differently, you'll steal market share from them the, who don't know what's going on. You may give them, as you mentioned, you may give them some of have them take your products, don't sell them anymore because you know they're really unprofitable. Let them lose money on it. So um typical ways to To approach being competitive,
0: sure. So, what are some tips and tricks that people, that business leaders, need to think about? And without going back through the same accounting pieces, what what should they? What are the first steps they need to think about? How should they look at their standard P and Ls and start parsing them, if you will? If there's a business manager kind of that's not in the executive leadership of how how should they be thinking about this? What are the tips and tricks to for them to look at and think about this?
1: Let me talk about tips and tricks for the managers who report to the executives and then we'll get to the executives. Okay because something I'm I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later is the slow adoption rate, of all these methods. I'm, I just, I find it amazing. I was lucky, I got trained by Professor Robert S. Kaplan of the Harvard Business School. Some of the people listening will recognize his name, but they're gonna recognize his name from the work he did with Dr. David Norton creating the balance scorecard and strategy maps. He did the early pioneering work on activity-based costing in the 70s. I, I got recruited from Deloitte to KPMG, you know, to get trained on that. What um, we found, was, and that's actually what led to writing more and more uh, of these, of these books. So managers, I tell them, you need to ask pain questions, you know, because there is resistance. Resistance is human nature. I mean, people like the status quo, you know, only babies like change, you know, diapers. Um, You've got to overcome their resistance. And what, What's required, the ingredients to overcome resistance in anybody are really three things discomfort with the current state, two, a vision of what better looks like, and three, first practical steps. You ask, how do you start? You start with pain question, you start with the discomfort with the current state. So, you know, managers should be asking their bosses and executive development, are we measuring the right things? Do we know which product and service lines are more or less profitable? Do we know which customers are more or less profitable? Does everybody, all the employees understand your strategy? That's a strategy map, balance scorecard, Um, and on and on and on. I actually have a document with, I think, 20 pain questions. The purpose of the pain questions is to create discomfort. I couldn't, you know, we call it FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt in the executives. So they, Mm -hmm. so they like, yeah, does everybody, are we measuring the right things? I don't know. Um, Does everybody understand our strategy in the company? Maybe, oh, you you think they do? I'll just go out in the hallway for about a half hour. I'll interview 10 employees, ask them, can you define and articulate the executive team's strategy? I'll come back with you what they've got. Oh, they're going to like, because they know most employees don't. So these are those pain questions that once they feel discomfort, they're going to like, well, how do I fix it? And that's where the corporate performance management methods come in. Can I briefly describe, I'm, I'm going to, what corporate performance manage Because there's a lot of confusion and lack of consensus. People think, you know, it's a process or a system. It's not. What it is, it's the integration. Look at, I'm like gears in a machine of about five or six or seven methodologies. One, profitability reporting using activity-based costing. Two, strategy management. KPIs, from performance, t- using balanced scorecard strategy map, and some similar tools. Three, driver-based budgeting, and then rolling financial forecast. reason I add that is because the budget's out of date in a couple of months after it's published. So what you want to do is keep re- refreshing it, but it needs to be driver-based. Another one, enterprise risk management, which we're going to talk about. That's your show. Um, another one, process improvement, productivity, the lean accounting, all these moving parts fit together seamlessly, which is what corporate performance management, you know, is. Now, the misconception of the executives above them is they're too complicated or they don't even understand that all these moving parts are actually part of a kind of like a system of Mm -hmm. sort. I don't like to refer to corporate performance management as a system. And you mentioned about books. I think I've written three books done on corporate performance management explaining what I just explained briefly to you.
0: So one of the things you mentioned I want to pick up on is budgeting. Because if you budget to sell 1,000 widgets over the year and you have certain amount of costing and then the delivery costs and what have you, well, if you are way above that, you're 20%, you're selling 1,200 widgets. One of the things that a lot of managers do is, well, you're over budget on your delivery costs. Well, they don't necessarily think about, well, I'm also 20% over on my sales. I have to be beyond that in my cost to deliver. And so people tend to get caught up in the budget, not necessarily the activity to deliver the product within an increasing rep. A revenue stream. And so I want to, can you talk about that? Because I think it's a misnomer to always stick to the budget when you have variables that are beyond your control that you're trying to keep up with.
1: Well, many of the people can go into their attic or basement and dig out their cost accounting or a textbook because it's price, volume, cost. There's there's a chart that kind of brings in the variability. But I, I want to start with the first thing you said, budgeting. There's so many problems with the budget. I already mentioned it's out of date a couple of months after it's published. Um, It caves into the loudest voice and strongest muscle. Some of the real veteran sandbaggers, you know, bald gray hairs, white. They've been in the budget every year. They know what they're doing. They know how to basically, you know, pad it. Um, it It incorporates last year's inefficiencies into this year's budget. So if we had an inefficient process last year, you know, we're replicating it now. Um, the padding really bothers me where they, you know, add more than they really need. Um, and then there's use it or lose it behavior. When a manager is like two, three months on a glide path from the end of the fiscal year, and it's clear to them, they're not going to have spent all that the uh, budget that was approved for them and allotted the previous, what do they just start doing? They start spending. Needlessly, foolishly, you know, on anything. Why? Because they know that this sort of like spreadsheet mentality that next year's budget is going to be pegged to the baseline of how much they spent this year. Okay. Let me describe how typical companies do their budgeting. And then I'll tell you a solution to it. They give every manager a spreadsheet, they fill it out January to December, every line item of expense, including paper clips and rubber bands. Someone consolidates it in the accounting department. They bring in the sales forecast from the sales department, gives a PL, they give it to the executives. They say, well, that's okay, not good enough. Have them change the numbers. All the managers reduce some of their spending of their ledger accounts, consolidate back, back to the executives. That's a little bit better, but not good enough. Up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. You almost want the executives, what number did you want in the first place? But that would, so it'll save us all this spreadsheet stuff but that's aspirational. That's what they want. Mm -hmm. What what driver-based, capacity-sensitive driver-based budgeting does, briefly, is it takes all the operational expenses and it uses, with an activity-based costing system that precedes it, what's called unit-level consumption rates. And I think I learned this equation, which I'm about to say my sophomore or second semester, freshman year, Cornell University is where I got my industrial engineering and uh, operations research. Then I got my MBA at Northwestern Kellogg. But the equation was volume and mix times unit level consumption rate equals the capacity required, how many employees, types, and salary wages. So now, now I'm really modeling what the level of spending is gonna be. None of this spreadsheet stuff. And then I also got to bring in some project things like strategy projects. You know, one of the problems is with the accountants is the budget's disconnected from the strategy. If we, if you use the Kaplan and Norton strategy at Balanced scorecard with the perspectives, you got to fund the projectives, you get that in. Risk, enterprise risk management, which we should talk about. Risk mitigation, all of the various risk mitigation. Those are projects. Capital projects, which everybody's familiar with. So if you do this unit level consumption rate mathematics, solving for the level of capacity, notice you got to think like an engineer. I keep telling the accountant, you got to think like an engineer. Don't be a bean counter. You want to be a bean grower. Um, And then I combine it with the three types of projects capital projects, strategy projects, risk mitigation projects. Now, when I get at the end and give that to executives, that is a far more reliable useful number than up, down, up, down with spreadsheets.
0: Well, very good. So as you keep talking about, this is a risk-based program. And so why don't we talk about some of the enterprise risk impacts of not having the right financial visibility? So I'm going to turn it over to you to see what what your most frequent observations of that are.
1: Well, let's just start with Best Buy, Toys R Us, and a whole bunch of others that are bankrupt. Let's just start there. Okay. And, and there's some other statistics that I I don't remember, but people can search. If you look at the original Standard & Poor's 500, the number of companies that were in the original 500 today is a fraction. If you look at the Forbes 100, the number of companies that were in the original Forbes 100 that are alive today, gone. So, and I think the problem is when an organization is profitable and successful, it breeds adversity to taking risks. But each new week, month is a new month and competitors are changing, technologies are changing. So it's kind of being asleep at the switch or just not recognizing, you know, that, these changes can, I mean, look at the most recent, I said Toys R Us, Bed, Bed Bath & Beyond. Yep. You
0: know,
1: they're under. You know, if you look at those, the older people are going to remember the book by called In Search of Excellence by mm-hmm. Tom Peters. Sure. Well, in the 1970s, they were McKinsey Consultants. They had this formula equation. They went through, you know, and here were, I can't remember the number of the best companies for the In Search of Excellence. You look at that list now there's about 10 on that list bankrupt and gone. So, you know, uh, if you're too comfortable with where you're at, you're, you're exposed to the risk of basically being outsmarted. And that's kind of where analytics comes into play if we're going to talk about, you know, business analytics and the like.
0: Tell tell me what has caused the interest in CPM, the Corporate Performance Management programs?
1: Well, there's there's quite a few. Um, the The first one is just executive frustration with strategy failure. Executives are quite good at formulating strategy. Their big frustration is lack of success or not enough success implementing it with their managers and employees. And there's some empirical evidence on this. There's an executive recruiting firm in Chicago monitors the involuntary turnover of CEOs in North America, the firing of CEOs. It's increasing every year. And I believe it's because governance board, board of directors post Enron, take their governance job far more seriously. So if the CEO and the team isn't executing the strategy, they're gone. Carly Fiorini at Hewlett Packard being an example. Another one, increased accountability. Today, there is no place to hide. Managers and employees will be monitored. They will be measured. Doesn't necessarily mean their jobs are at risk, but it could basically adversely affect their salary increases, job promotions. Another one, more rapid decision-making. Unlike a few months, years ago, you could test and learn and have meetings and conference rooms. Today, people are on the phone, go or no go, yes or no. They need to make a decision in near real time. They almost wish an executive was sitting next to them saying, you know, how does this align with your strategy? Four, mistrust of the management accounting system. We already talked that. We know it's flawed. It's misleading. Most managers, they know it's wrong, but they don't have any control. They don't know how to basically if you will influence the CFO and the accounting department, get it more right, you know, consider activity-based costing. Five, poor customer management. Um, we already also talked about that. You really need to customer, you need to measure customer profitability, a PL and l by customer. And incidentally, one of the early embryonic trends happening right now with customer profitability, when people do report it, is changing the incentive commission program for the sales force, to not just be 100% sales, but like a blend, like 60% sales, 40% profit for each customer. So when the sales director has the account planning meeting, they're actually giving them two metrics. Mm -hmm. And that way, the salesperson has to start thinking about, oh, what do I do to make the customer profitable? Because here's the reality. Customers are the source of value creation for owners and shareholders. So we've got to connect that. Six, contentious budgeting. We already talked to it, you know that the budget's broken, it's out of date, it caves into the loudest voice, strongest muscle. We want to move to driver based capacity sensitive driver based rolling financial forecast. Supply chain, not everybody listening to me, maybe in supply chain, they maybe have consumers in b to c business to consumer, but those that are in b to b business to business, the issue there is most suppliers, most customers, excuse me, most customers treat their suppliers like the enemy. You know, oh, let's just pound on them. Let's negotiate lower prices. We put them out of business. So what? We'll get another supplier. That's got to stop. It's got to be a marriage. Supply chains are competing against other supply chains. And finally, unfulfilled return on investment uh, promises from large IT software vendors like ERP, Enterprise Resource Planning Centers. I'm not going to name names, but there's a whole bunch of them. And the issue there is if you ask the IT director... How well do you believe now that you've completed implementing your ERP system that the return on investment met or exceeded what the salesperson, the ERP salesperson sold you one two years ago? And a lot of the IT IT was, I'm not sure we just spent two years putting this in. I'm not sure we got the payback. The problem is the ERP tools produce a lot of data, but not information. You Mm -hmm. convert data into information. So to make a long story short... All these corporate performance management methods, the gears, profitability analysis, strategy, you know, they, they take the information like seeds from the ground and the ROI actually comes from the corporate performance management methods. Those are, I think, eight reasons why there is increasing interest in corporate performance management.
0: Well, great. That helps. Thank you. <laughs> now we're moving on to the Blind spot Insider segment of the show. This is where our guests answer questions that have been submitted by our listeners. This allows the listeners to submit questions, get different insights, specifically to questions that they had that may not otherwise be covered in our episode. If you're not a blind spot Insider, please go and register at riskblindspots.com, plural, because we all have them, riskblindspots.com, to be able to submit questions for our guests, to listen to the responses, and to get exclusive content. So with that, here's our first question. So, Gary, the knowledge you provided today has been really terrific, uh, very insightful. I think people that uh, are not accounting experts will understand that, bottom line, you can't always rely on the standard numbers, the standard P&Ls when you're trying to run and manage a business. And the spot Insiders got a bit of an insight as to how to think about the cost accounting and the ABCs uh, in their situations. So I want to thank you for that. So can you tell our audience where to find you?
1: Okay. Well, I, I do have a website. It's www.garycokins.com, G-A-R-Y-C as in clock, Okay. I N S. Maybe you can see my name in the Zoom little corner there. Um, and across the tabs are, there are tabs under them are many articles that I've written all for free. There's nothing you have to buy in, in my website. You're more than welcome to invite me to connect on LinkedIn. Uh, it would be nice if you did the optional message. And so I listen listened to Larry Gordon's, you know, heard you on that. So I kind of like know who are you. Um, but my website would be a good start. www.garycokens.com all, all of my books are published by Wiley, John Wiley and son. So that's www. Wiley.com. Oh, and I don't want to be accused now, Larry, by people. Oh, this guy's pushing his books. Get ready, really. No, you don't need to buy my books. But if you go to Wiley each book, typically chapter one is a free PDF download or, you know, so you can kind of get a quick, you know, cliff notes of, you know, what's the book all about, and then you don't need to go buy the book. And then many of those PDFs are also below the tabs in my website. Can I leave on just one final remark? Absolutely. This may disturb some people, but I believe in the past, the best executives and the best leaders had the best uh, answers. Today, I don't think that's the case. Today, I think the best leaders and best executives have the best questions. There's too much volatility. There's too much uncertainty. There's too much complexity for them to rely on their you Know gut feel or sixth sense, or the types of answers they had earlier in their career that got them promoted to the high levels. They need to create a culture of investigation and discovery and exploration uh, and tolerance for making mistakes as long as you learn from your mistakes. So, um, I'm just really, and that's a leaving a lesson I learned in my life earlier in my consulting career are kind of like, oh, you know, i got these degrees. I must be a pretty smart guy. I'll, I'll keep lecturing to people. No, I did a 180. People will respect you by the types of questions. Look at the questions you asked me. They were all excellent. So it's key to ask good questions. The questions then lead to d- d- conversations, needed conversations, you know, like why is our biggest customer unprofitable kind of thing? So I I took a couple of minutes at the end, but now you can now you can end it. <laughs>
0: So, with that, I want to thank you, Gary. This has been a great episode. We appreciate your time and energy, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you for tuning in and joining this What the Risk podcast, designed to be a safe space to learn about risk, how to think about risk, and how to expose business blind spots. This podcast is about empowering you as business leaders to reduce the stress of the unknown risks in your business, as well as the stress of decision making by being able to identify and mitigate potential risks through the right level of due diligence. So here are three quick next steps that I need you to do. Hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to make sure you don't miss future episodes and give us a five-star rating. Share the podcast with a peer. Both of you will gain visibility to what you didn't know existed in the blind spots. And go to riskblindspots.com. That's plural because we all have them. riskblindspots.com. To become a blind spot insider. You'll get exclusive advance notice of the next two episodes so you can submit questions, topics, and suggestions for our show and tell us if we have any blind spots. Continue with us on this journey as we learn to ask the right questions, expose potential pitfalls, and turn those what the risk moments into I've got this victories.